Welcome to the Screen the Screener College Basketball Podcast with your hosts, Mike Randall and Gus Kearns. We are at the mountaintop. We are at the zenith. We are at the finish line. We are here, and the final four is upon us. Welcome to the Screen the Screener Podcast, where we talk all things NCAA basketball with you. I am Mike Randall, joined as always by Gus Kearns here on the Screen the Screener Podcast. If you want to contact us, you can contact the show at SDS Podcast. You can t- contact me at Fantasy Warrior Mike, FTSY Warrior Mike, or my illustrious partner, Gus Kearns, at CKearns12 on Twitter. Gus, we're here. We wait all year. How are we doing, my friend? Mike Randall, good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for your personal choice of consumption of the Screen the Screener podcast. We are manufacturing this Final Four preview basketball listening road trip on the evening of March 30th. Thank you for everything, March. We're so sad to see you depart, but happy April Fools, everyone. Please pull out your best and safest prank for your crew. We aim to uh, improve that commute to and fro. Thanks for plugging us into the car, plugging us into your headphones, or plugging us into your earbuds. We hope to prepare you for those dramatic Saturday tilts. And I hope that you love all the chatter this this week brings for our sport. Thank you for allowing Screen the Screener to add to that positive chatter. We are always thankful, so humbled, and honestly honored to check NCAA Hoops with you, Mike, and our ever-increasing audience. We just want to say ahoy out there, at Hoops Kids with a Z on the end. Thanks for listening. Keep making a difference out there. And ahoy out there, at Brinley Sports. Thanks for tuning in, and congrats on the first article. Salancha, everybody. Gratulatia. Happy to have everybody tune in. Mike, let's get this thing rolling for the listeners out there and catch everybody up on the coaching moves, the um, all-American teams from Screen the Screener, and our final four selections. Gosh, gosh, it feels like we haven't talked forever, right? It's only been a few days, but so much has gone on here. So let's jump right back in. Haven't done this for a while. Let's hit our news and notes. News and notes from the hardwood. So first item that we need to discuss is Archie Miller going to Indiana. Okay. I'll admit, I was 100% off on this. During our Sweet 16 preview, I think I mentioned the term something like, Archie Miller will be at Dayton for the next 10 years. He wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, that was way off. So Arch takes the Indy job. Great hire by Indiana. Great move by Archie Miller. Mike, here's my two cents on this. You think that, oh, man, Indiana totally nailed this job, right? Indiana is going to be back at the top of the mountain again. Indiana is going to go roll right back up. But if you look at it seriously, and you have Archie Miller coming into your living room, You have John Calipari coming into your living room. You have Sean Miller coming into your living room. You have Bill Self coming into your living room. And you have Coach K and his new, like, one-and-done strategy coming into your living room. It seems like Archie Miller still might come in fifth place there. So as awesome and as amazing, as impressive as this hire is for Indiana, I still think he has a little bit of an uphill battle here at Indiana to get them back to the place that they think that they should belong. But maybe in reality, Archie Miller's just going to get them for get them back to where they kind of belong currently, which is maybe back in the Sweet 16, maybe an Elite 8 run, which is kind of where they were with Crean. Am I really off here or do we feel like this might be like almost a parallel move 
for Archie and for Indiana and maybe even for Kareen. I'm not really sure that this is really going to improve Indiana's standing, but I'm glad that Archie took a big-time job is going to get an opportunity to show what he can do on a bigger stage with a bigger bigger audience. I kind of disagree on that one, Gus. I think Archie Miller is going to do great. I mean, he is the hot young coach here. He's cut his nails on a Dayton program, which did not have as many resources. He did a great job. He had a great recruiting class. And listen, I think Tom Crean did a solid job recruiting, but are we sure that Tom Crean is really that good? Tom Crean was there because Dwayne Wade took him to the Final Four with Marquette. And then since then, he did an okay job. He brought him from the depths of, of really anonymity in Indiana. But I think Archie Miller is going to do fine. I think with the, the, the bigger facilities, I think with the natural pull of Indiana, and Archie has cut his teeth and is a hardworking guy at a smaller school with smaller resources. So those type of guys tend to do really well. He's going to go to Indiana. I think he's going to do just fine. I, look, I agree. I think he's going to do amazing things. I think he's going to get them you know, where they would like to be. I have no doubt in Archie Miller's ability as a coach. I just don't know if, like, in the reality of things, because of the perception that Indiana and the program has, like, they should be competing for a Final Four. They should be competing for more championships. I just don't know, like, you know, if we went through the living room rundown, like, I, I don't know where Archie Miller will fall. Maybe that'll change over the next couple of years. But also, let's pay attention to this. We championed Dayton this season because of that particular class that they had this, this past season. And they won over 120 games as a class. So maybe Archie Miller does the same thing at Indiana and recruits that type of player. And then does his unbelievable job that he always does with player development and, and building a culture. And he gets that type of system going there where he has kids stay, invest in the program, invest in being a Hoosier, invest in the candy cane pants, invest in improving Indiana's basketball culture. And then, you know, by year three or year four, when he has a whole bunch of studs that have been in his program for a while, similar to the Yogi Ferrell situation, maybe that maybe that's the path of success that Archie Miller is going to bring to Indiana. So I... I think the, the pedigree is there. The history is there. So if he can just do the same thing and maybe instead – and this is no slight on Scoochie Smith, Pollard, Cook, Davis, and the rest of the crew at Dayton. By no means is a slight on them because we love them. We've championed them all season. Maybe he just gets a step up, maybe just like half a notch up player from those players at Indiana and has those guys hang around for three or four years and graduate. I think then we're cooking. I think then Archie Miller and Indiana are in the right mix. I think that's how it works. I think Archie Miller is definitely going to be able to recruit. Listen, if Tom Cream recruited there, Archie Miller can. Uh, Cream was living off of Wade. He went there. He did a really good job. Archie Miller has been recruiting in Dayton. He's coming in, new facilities, the whole thing. He's a go-getter. He's a hard worker. That's his thing is that he's a great recruiter, much like his brother who went from Xavier to Arizona. I think Miller is going to do just fine. Okay. How about, since we're talking about Dayton, can we just – Go and say Dayton's hire of Anthony Grant was superior. This guy has been in the NBA with um, with Donovan at OKC. He was a former assistant with Donovan at Florida. And he had a moderate amount of success coaching at Indiana. Uh, I'm sorry, coaching at Alabama in a big-time conference. And he had great success at VCU. So I think this – and he's a former Dayton player. So I think this hire by Dayton 
couldn't get better. Totally off the radar. I don't think anybody kind of had their pulse on this higher. And he kind of knows that mid-major game and that mid-major feel from being at VCU. He knows what it takes to be an NBA player. So maybe he gets one of those under-the-radar guys and develops them into an NBA player. I think this is an unbelievable hire. So Dayton, he just keep. I bet he just keeps on keeping on with what the Flyers had. This might be the best hire we've seen in this annual like coaching merry-go-round that we have. Mike, what, what did this catch you by surprise? Was this what was your opinion on this? I think we're going to be in opposite sides of the field on this one. I, I'm not sure I'm sold on Anthony Grant. Listen, he coached at VCU. He did a fantastic job there. They upset Duke in the tournament. It was hot as could be. Then he makes the jump, much like Archie Miller just did, and goes to a big school at Alabama. He coaches there for six years. He makes one NCAA tournament, and they fire him. So basically, it was pretty much a failed attempt there at Alabama. Then he goes and hangs out with Donovan. He goes to the NBA, different role, not a huge assistant guy coming from the NBA, coming back down and going to college, but he has been a head coach before. He's a Dayton player. He's from there. So I think he has that going for him. But I think the jury's still out on whether Anthony Grant is a good coach or not. I like the fact that he's you know a Dayton guy, but are we going to see the Alabama Anthony Grant or are we going to see the VCU Anthony Grant? Fair. I, I'm going to be on the other side of the fence. I think this is a great hire because of his resume, because of his experience, because of his pedigree, uh, because he's had success at the mid-major level. And I think this is a, the exact type of person that uh, Dayton was looking for. And it's. I feel like it's a little bit of a sneaky hire. I don't know if other programs would have looked at Anthony Grant as a you know, potential prospect for their coaching opening. So I think that they were like a little creative here. And I think that they were really went out of the box. And so I, I applaud Dayton, and they did like a very Dayton thing. That's exactly what Dayton does all the time. And I look, you and I have been in love with Dayton like all season. So I'm just hoping that you know Anthony Grant can continue that success and can and continue that vibe that they had going on with Archie uh, when Archie was there. No, me too. Rooting for him, sleeping with one eye open, but rooting for him. Hope he does well. Sure, sure. I, I think that's fair. All right, you have you know a little inside beat. To the UMass situation. All right, break, break it down for us, please. No problem. UMass thought they had their man when they hired Pat Kelsey from Winthrop University. He comes up. He's ready to do the deal. He gets there. He meets the players. He brings his family. And all of a sudden, 35 minutes before he's about to be introduced, he calls the AD and says, listen, I don't think this is a job for me. Just a bizarre story. It's got to be because he doesn't like the area. The facilities are great. I've been there. So it's got to be that he and or his wife – both were not comfortable there for whatever reason. UMass is a great town. Amherst is a great town. It's a great place to, to be the head coach. I don't get it. I mean, especially in the internet age, Gus. I mean, I think you can look up these places. But anyway, so then they turn attention. Now they're looking at Mike McCall. Now Mike McCall is coming up. He's going to get the job. He's from Chattanooga. Uh, McCall took over for Will Wade, who then left and went to VCU. He was the Southern Conference Coach of the Year in 2016. This year he did a nice job, had a couple big wins beginning of the year, uh, beat Tennessee, beat Marshall, almost beat Vanderbilt. Then they ended the season a little bad, losing five in a row. But McCall's up there now. Gus, he had a contract for, I think it was five years, 800000 He only chose to take 750000 He gave some of that money back to his assistants as well as to do some stuff in the program. Uh, the administration has given money. There's a guy there who's called Sign Man, who everybody loves, who walks around with these signs during the games. They gave him money in order to make new signs for Coach McCall. So there's a real good vibe up there right now. I think McCall is the right guy. I think he's going to be fantastic. And UMass there with Archie Miller leaving the A-10 and 
Uh, Will Wade going down from VCU now to LSU. The A-10 is completely wide open. It's a great program. It's got great history. The fans support it. It was super loud when I went there for that Chaz Williams game against VCU. So I think it's a good hire. He's a young, energetic guy, has success at Chattanooga, worked under Billy Donovan. Billy Donovan called UMass, talked to them for a while on his behalf. So all in all, I think UMass is really excited. It was a great hire. I totally agree. It seemed like the Kelsey thing was going to turn into a big mess, and then they end up nailing this higher in a big way. I mean, if you think back to two tournaments ago, not this previous tournament, the tournament that we're in currently, um, the mocks were a very trendy upset pick in that first round, and McCall was at the head, and that was his first year as the mocks coach. And they had a very decent season this year. Like you mentioned, had a couple of big wins early on and kind of faltered late. Uh, He had that thing kind of rolling in the right direction. Now that he has some uh like you said like i I don't know like uh better amenities at umass i think that he might actually invest and have this thing rolling in the right direction and maybe umass revisits some of that past history and past uh success that they've had uh like you mentioned in your rundown so i think superior hire I, I, I'm a little bit higher on this hire than I am the Anthony Grant hire, to be honest, uh, for Dayton. I think I think it's a great job for UMass. And uh, and how could you not love McCall for like saying, oh, I'm not going to take that much money. I'm going to give some of my money here. I'm going to put some of it here. I'm going to give some to my assistant coaches. I'm going to give it to the sign guy. Doesn't that sign guy at UMass kind of remind you of like the uh, frying pan guy at Yankee Stadium? Oh, 100%. Totally does. Great comparison. And remember, the $50,000. $50,000 for somebody making $800,000 is nowhere near as important it is to somebody who's making 100000 getting like 20000 of that money if he divided it. So great job by Mike McCall. Amherst should be excited. Stock up UMass basketball. Fantastic hire, UMass. Well done. Uh, how about Quanzo Martin going to Missouri from Cal, seven years, $21 million. That three mil a year sounds really nice, doesn't it? He has already gotten Michael Porter Jr., the highly touted recruit that was headed to Washington to come back his way. The father was hired as assistant coach from Washington. Porter led all scorers in the All-American game with 17 points and eight boards. He's a 6'10 power forward. So already, Quanzo has a guy that he can build around right away and maybe start the success a little bit earlier than anybody thought. Mike, how did this all happen, and how did they get one of the top recruits and a, a very serviceable coach all in one like magical wave of the magic wand? It's very simple, Gus. Steve Alford puts up with LeVar Ball because he has Lonzo Ball, and Quanzo Martin's going to find a job for Michael Porter Jr.'s father, so he can have Michael Porter Jr. with him in Missouri as he's trying to build a program. Quanzo Martin comes off to me like a great guy. People just like him. They gravitate towards him. He has a big personality, and they want to be a part of his program. I love the job security. That's a seven-year deal. Maybe I'm thinking like a parent now because we're parents. That's a seven-year deal that takes a kid from fifth grade almost through high school. So the longevity matters. The long contracts are in. Great job for Quanzo Martin. Missouri looks like it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to bring in a recruit like that and bring in a coach like that, I think every major program would want some sort of like package like that. That, that that's fairly amazing that they were able to go ahead and pull that off. Uh, I'm looking forward to what they're able to build there around him, and maybe they can pull another recruit, or maybe get a transfer, or something like that, and maybe you know pull some of the 
remains from the Kim Anderson, Kim Anderson regime and, and, and go ahead and, and perhaps build a contender in year one of the Quanzo Martin project. All right, how about there's been, for some reason, I don't know why, I, maybe maybe you know, but I, I certainly don't know, there's been so much chatter about the Duquesne job. To be honest, like, I don't think the Duquesne job or the Duquesne program has ever even crossed my mind. It's out of control. Whole entire, like, basketball season. I don't know why it's gotten so much attention. No, it's out of control. It's out of control, Gus. The Duquesne job has been talked about here, and so many p- different people. King Rice was linked to it for a while. The only story here is that Baker Dunleavy at some point was being rumored to replace Jay Wright, which is absolutely incredible. But he went there. He wanted to be a head coach. It's close by Duquesne to Villanova. That's fine. But as Hoops Weiss said, he was tweeting it. He said, King Rice to Duquesne, be careful of dead-end jobs. Listen, if you want to be a head coach, that's fine, and you can definitely use it as a springboard, but it's going to be some tough sled net Duquesne for Baker Dunleavy. That's all i got to say about this. Yeah, I, I understand the the <clears throat> want and the need to go ahead and you know cut your teeth and, and, and get your hands dirty with it, but maybe there's a better opportunity there. And this is no this is no slight on the on the Duquesne program or anything like that. It just seems like there's just been so much attention given to this job for for I, I don't know for unnecessary reasons. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. And the last place we'll hop to is uh, we'll head out back to Washington and we'll take Mike Hopkins from Syracuse and place him in Washington. And he got 12.3 million over six years. So it makes you wonder, like, what happened with Bayheim that he went ahead and left, like, his job in waiting with Syracuse? And why did he jump ship? Maybe he just got tired. Maybe he's a West Coast guy. Maybe he wanted the challenge of, you know, taking a big-time program and starting from scratch, which what he'll be doing without, without Markel Fultz, without Markel Fultz, and, of course, Porter not going there now. So seems like Hopkins has his work cut out for him here. Uh, what do you think? Good move by Hopkins, good move by Washington, uh, maybe throwing your hands up on both ends. I'm not. What, what do you think? Yeah, this one's very simple. Hopkins had enough. He had been an assistant coach at Syracuse for 21 years. I mean, how many people are an assistant longer than 21 years? He's ready to be a head coach. He's been waiting for Beheim. Remember, he was uh, the interim assistant there for interim head coach for like nine games when Beheim was suspended. He said, "Enough is enough. I'm going to Washington. It's on the other side of of the coast there, other side of the country. He has a great school, great facilities. Romar did a great job recruiting there. You know, when people say that the hardest thing to do in sports is to coach a great athlete on the downside of his career, I think the coaching argument for that is to tell a coach who's a veteran coach, it's time to move on. It's like these people tell you they're going to retire, they're going to retire, they're going to retire, and they never do. I mean, Hopkins said enough is enough. I'm going to a Pac-12 school. They, they have great facilities. I can I can recruit there. It's on the opposite side of the country, so I get away from the Syracuse stigma. And here we go. He just got sick of waiting for Beheim and said, I, I had enough. Yeah, I also think he gets out of <clears throat> Beheim's hair when he's in the Pac-12. So I, I think it's a great move for both parties. I, I agree. Like, if you're kind of like, you know, hand you know handshake under the table, like promised a job, and then you're just kind of waiting on that job, and that job never opens up, and, you know, Bayheim for whatever reason, just wants to hang around and, like, you know, give it a run a couple of more times. Like, yeah, I have no problem with him going ahead and going out to Washington and saying, like, you know, screw this. I'm done waiting here. I'm going to go do my own gig. And you know what? I hope we have the opportunity that we can meet in the tournament and I'm going to kick your butt around. I, I kind of like that aspect of yep, it. Exactly. And I like that he went to the other coast to go ahead and, and, and start anew. I, 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 I'm admiring that part 
of Hopkins' move to Washington. Agreed. Totally agreed. Uh, all right, Mike, what do you say? Do you think we want to get into some All-American teams here? Are you kind of ready to do that? Uh, I'm on fire. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready to give my All-American teams. Why don't you go first? You give yours. You go straight from third team all the way up to first team. Build the drama there. Then I'll go, and then we'll talk about the real All-American teams and give some criticism on that. Sound good? All right. That sounds fantastic. As we mentioned earlier on uh, previous podcasts, if we are going to have an All-American team and a list of the best players in the nation for the 2017 NCAA basketball season, a list is not a list without Semi Oljale. My third team begins with the SMU junior. The list is not a list without Semi Oljale. The dude is a stud. He averaged 19 and 7, very similar numbers to the next player on our third team, or my third team. He went for 24 and 10 in the loss to USC in round one this year. Gotta love his work ethic, his attention to detail. I hope he comes back and decides to be a first-team All-American next year. He put his name in for the draft, but he did not hire an agent. Very smart. Next player on my third team, Josh Jackson, Kansas. Remember those numbers from Semi? Here they are again, 16 points, 7 boards. He shot it 50% from the field, really nice. 38% from three, really improved but only 57% from the line. I'm just going to say, ugh. He competes at a super high level. He can guard any position from one to four. How about this? Think of him as a slightly better, longer, better long-range shooter than Winslow from Duke last year. Third member of my third team All-American is Dylan Brooks from Oregon. He's still playing. Injuries robbed him of an opportunity to be a first-team All-American this season. But with two or three game winners at the buzzer this year and a Final Four run, Brooks is still worthy on this list, albeit a little bit lower than others predicted in October. Fourth member of my third team has to go to De'Aaron Fox of Kentucky. This spot might be a little bit too low for this game-changing point guard after viewing his 39-point game versus Lonzo Ball in UCLA. You can make a valid argument for him to be on the second team or even the first team All-American. He reminds us of a few players, but how about this one? Does he remind you of a little bit of a Derrick Rose with a better jumper? That's a little scary, isn't it? And my final third-team member of my... uh, uh, My final member of the third-team All-American is our guy, Monte Morris. He did his thing all season. He won a game in Kansas in overtime. He had a triple-double, and he had four other near misses on triple-doubles during the season. He averaged 16-plus points, five boards, six-plus assists. He only had 42 turnovers all season. Let that sink in for a second. High usage point guard, 42 turnovers all season. In case you're wondering, that's an assist-to-turnover ratio of 5.17 to 1. The NBA team that selects Morris this June is going to find another Malcolm Brogdon like he's playing for the Bucks right now, a player that's going to help his team win and help his team make the playoffs because he's going to get drafted later on in the first round to a potential playoff team. That team is going to strike gold with Monte Morris. I can't wait for him to find success in the NBA the same way that he found success in his college career staying four years. Mike Randall, that is my third team All-American. I can't wait to hear yours. A lot of similarities, man. We're right on the money. We're in lockstep in a lot of these. I'll go in order from, I think, the least to the most, you know, the, the one who was closest to second team. Can I just jump in for two seconds? 
just to give the listeners like and lift the curtain a little bit, Mike and I do not know each other's we first, second, and third team. We do not. So we're just hearing it for the first time right now. So we're, we're uh, it's pretty cool to hear the reaction. I, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Lockstep, lockstep, Gus. I love all yours. I think they're excellent. And I'm going to say before I give my third team that I have my, my theory. And my theory is that I believe that the success of the team should matter. I think that the success has to matter. I'm not a big stack guy for a team that doesn't have success. And I like the theme. Every player has a theme for me here on how they've done during the year. So we'll go to my third team. First player is Larry Markkinen. Arizona was one of the best teams in the country all year, and they were especially one of the best teams in the country at the beginning of the year. Marketing was 15.6 points per game, 7.2 rebounds per game, nine games of 20-plus points. He was 49% from the field, 42% from three-point range, 84% from the free-throw line. Arizona was 33-5 and overall. They were 16-2 and in the Pac-12 conference, tied for first. They lost their best player for 19 games, Alonzo Trier, as well as losing Parker Jackson Cartwright for several games as well. So to me, Lowry Marketing is an excellent selection. He's got to be on there. He was carrying this team for most of the season. Next one I'm going to go to is Bonzi Colson. Bonzi Colson was Mr. Underrated for Notre Dame this year. The team tied for second in the ACC, Notre Dame did. He averaged 17.8 and 10.1, basically a double-double per game. His numbers are great. 52% from the field, 78% from the free throw line, 43% from three. He had 14 games of 20 or more points. Notre Dame was 26-10 and 10 overall and 12-6 and 6 in conference. The only reason I don't have him on second team, his numbers warrant it, but the team didn't have the success. And I will admit that that is my sort of basis here as I'm putting these, these players together. So Bonzi Colson on my third team. Next up, I'm going to go with Semi Ojale. Same reasons you said. 19 points per game, 7 rebounds. He was at his best at the end of the year. SMU had a 16-game winning streak. They won the AAC, 49% from the field, 80% from the free throw line, 42% from three-point range. And by the way, Gus, he played, of course, 34 minutes. All the SMU guys did because they didn't have much of a bench. But you can't have a list, as we said before, without Semi Ojale on it. He's on my third team. Next, I'll go to Josh Jackson of Kansas. 16.3 points per game, 7.4 rebounds per game, three assists. He was an undersized forward that dominated all season, 51% from the field, 38% from three-point range, 1.1 blocks, 1.1 steals. He did it all, 11 double-doubles. Kansas is one of the best teams, if not the best team all season long. And Josh Jackson, along with Frank Mason, were the main reasons why. The last one who does not appear on the regular third team for the AP, which amazes me, is Monte Morris. Look, Monte Morris, 16.4 points per game, 4.8 rebounds, 6.2 assists. He played over 35 minutes. And, of course, Gus, you've always talked about the assist-to-turnover ratio 5-1. to one. Iowa State ended up 24 and 11, 12 and 6 in the Big 10, but they finished 10 and 2 to end the season. Just a scalding hot end of the season and they won the Big 12 tournament championship and that matters. Basically Monte Morris took a team that was not making the tournament that people thought was really good at the beginning of the year and brought them back from the depths into the NCAA tournament, came in as a 5 seed, had a real close game with Purdue as a 4 seed and they won the Big 12 tournament championship and Monte Morris is the main reason why. He's going to be a great pro and he's got to be somewhere on the All-American team. I just don't get it. I support the third team. You know what? Marketing was one of the guys that I felt like I I, I was trying to carve out a spot for and I, I couldn't I couldn't find a spot for him. 
It was close. Uh, no, he's yeah. close. I, I think it's reasonable. I, 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 so you didn't have him on, but I, I think that that's a reasonable omission. He's right there. He's, he's right yeah, in the mix. I, I think if we're you know going for like you know honorable mention or also ran, like he he is like the first, second, or third choice for me as far as just missing the team. So I'll, I'll get into my second team, uh, and then uh, I'd love to hear your second team. So my second team is going to start with uh, some familiar names. Let's just go right to the ACC right away, and we'll go to a, for an ACC double hit here. Luke Kennard Duke. It's not the player you thought you'd find on this list from Duke back in October. You thought Grayson Allen was the guy. He was the guy that most people picked for the player of the year. But he got tripped up this season. P.S. Grayson Allen should come back to Duke. Kennard has a tricky array of shots that make him a really tough matchup. The wing shot a tidy 49% from the field, 85% from the line, 44% from three, while putting up 19-plus points per game. He's, he's an interesting guard. I, I, I don't know why he's so tricky to get a hold on. He's just really crafty. Uh, he operates uh, very efficiently in the tight windows that uh, he creates, and he's able to put up uh, efficient shots in those tight windows. He's a really unique player. I, I really enjoyed watching him grow as a player this year. He's really cool. So my first spot on my second team goes to Luke Kennard, and then we'll stick in the ACC, and we'll just go straight to Justin Jackson. Similar to Kennard, Jackson had a unique quiver of shots. He shot an improved three ball this year. That floater is one of the most signature shots of any player in college basketball this year. He's longer than you think inside. He's tougher than you think on D. And with his length and his competitiveness, he is an NBA player in waiting. My question for Josh, uh, for Justin Jackson is, I'm wondering whether he'll decide to come back to UNC or not. And then if he does declare for the draft, I'm wondering if he will hire an agent just to give him that option if he wants to come back, if he doesn't get the feedback that he thinks he's looking for. So I think Justin Jackson for the NBA draft is a really unique situation because of the UNC, I don't know, model as of late is those guys don't necessarily leave early. They like to come back and play for Coach Roy, and I think that uh, similar to Gonzaga in this sense, I think like life at UNC is a good life. So I don't know if people just want to go ahead and jump ship on that. My third spot on the second team goes to Jonathan Motley of Baylor. He just missed averaging a double-double this season. 17 points a game, 9.9 rebounds. I bet that .9 really bothers Jonathan Motley. He has crazy length. He has a very quick second jump. Um, Motley was the best player on a team that was ranked number one in – the NCAA this year and made the Sweet 16. Baylor keeps surprising fans every year. I bet Baylor, I, I bet Motley will also surprise NBA scouts. I'm kind of curious of what he will do as well. And you mentioned Bonzi before. I put him on my second team. I thought he was that nasty this year. The numbers here will sound pretty similar to Motley's. He had 17.8 points per game, you know, 10.1 boards. The difference here is that Bonzi does it at 6'5", and Motley does it at 6'10". Bonzi's percentages are really sound as well. 52% from the field, uh, 78% from the line, uh, 43% from three. He throw throwing a steal, throwing a block, and we're looking at a very solid second-team All-American. And then my last player on my second-team All-American team, which might be a little bit of a surprise, it's Lonzo Ball. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he can shoot it. Yeah, he's fun to watch. But UCLA was great early, 
and they settled into just about being a top 15 team late. No Pac-12 title. Second team feels just about right here. He was awesome. He was impactful. He was impressive. He was a game changer. But was he a first team All-American? I think he fell just short. Plus, if we're going to forecast forward, I kind of think he might not be the NBA player others feel he might be. I think there's going to be some weaknesses and some holes in his game that will get exposed on the NBA level that people did not get a chance to see at the NCAA level due to his size, his craftiness, his quickness, and the coaching that Coach Alford did to put him in positions to succeed. So that's my second team to review. I got Kennard, I got Justin Jackson, Motley, Bonzi Colson, and Lonzo Ball. Good for you, Gus. Good for you with that Lonzo Ball. I like you putting on second team. I think it's the right move. I think he's a little too cocky. People are overvaluing how good he's going to be in the pros. Totally agree, 100%. Great, great job on that one. I'll take you through my second team here quick. We're going to start with Dylan Brooks. I think he does deserve to be on. He's 16.3 points per game. He really didn't arrive until December 28th with that game-winning shot against UCLA. But from that point on, Oregon's been tremendous. They were 22-3. and They were a team that was 33-5 and and first in the Pac-12. If he's there the whole season, I think they're definitely a one seed. Dylan Brooks had an impact, hits big shots the whole year, came back. He was hurt, so he started off slow, but I think he deserves a spot because I think Oregon is one of those stories. Next up, I'll go with Malik Monk. Kentucky was 32-6 and overall, 16-2, and won the SEC regular season title, won the SEC tournament title. And basically, to me, Gus, Monk was the main story of the first half of the season. 19.8 points per game, 40% three-point range on 262 attempts. He had the 47 points against UNC, 34 against Ole Miss, 37 against Georgia, 33 against Florida. The first half of the year was all about Malik Monk and his shooting. He was absolutely outstanding, and because of that, I did put him on the second team. Next up is Justin Jackson. Believe it or not, I'm the guy who's championing the kids should stay. I think Justin Jackson's got to go. My real issue is with kids who are freshmen or sophomores, and Jackson is a junior, and I think he right now is going to be really hot, and his stock is never going to be higher for the NBA draft. 18 points per game, 16 games of 20 points or better. UNC was 31-7, and 14-4, first place in the best conference this year, the ACC. So basically, Jackson hit it right. Best player on the best team in the toughest conference. I think he deserves second team. He got on first team in, in reality. I understand that, but there's a couple people up there that I think have to be above him. But Justin Jackson is a solid for me, second team All-American. Next up is Motley for Baylor. You mentioned it's 17.3 points per game and 9.9. I'm sure, like you said, the, the point nine annoys him. Gus, Motley was one of the best players. He was the best player on one of the best teams for pretty much two-thirds of the season, right? Kansas was number one on January 10th, and then they ended up being number two when they played at Kansas on February 1st. So Baylor is a huge storyline this year. Baylor's success is a huge storyline, and Motley was the main reason why. 13 double-doubles, didn't get much from Ish Wainwright, didn't get much from Freeman. Lacan did a nice job for him, but he was Robin to Motley's Batman, and he was Batman for one of the best teams in the country for the regular season. That's why I have him on my second team. And my last second team All-American is Luke Kennard. 19 points per game, Gus, 49% from the field, 86% from the line, 44% from three-point range. He carried Duke by himself for pretty much the entire regular season. He had one single-digit scoring game all year, and that was at Boston College. 
Kennard was the man. Allen had all the issues that were going on. Tatum came on about halfway through the year. They had no bench whatsoever. He played big minutes. Luke Kennard carried Duke, and Duke won the ACC Tournament Championship, and Luke Kennard was the reason why. He is a mainstay. I almost put him on first team, but I think that the Duke story is pretty much they struggled for most of the year and then got hot at the end, whereas my top five guys are going to be from teams that were really good the whole year through. So just to summarize my second team, Kennard, Motley, Justin Jackson, Malik Monk, and Dylan Brooks. That's a pretty sick team. And just so uh, you know, we can be full disclosure with the listeners, like we're not the AP, we're not you know the Wooden Award. So Mike and I had the you know you mentioned how you wanted to vote on these like at the end of the season. Like Mike and I have the luxury, which is a pretty cool luxury of of you know waiting until right about now until the final four to go ahead and give these teams. So I think both of us were thinking like, oh, we're impacted by, you know, a couple of games in the tournament and we're impacted by the conference tournament. So we, you know, we've, we, we took all that into account as well. At least I did when I was doing my teams um, because we're not a slave to, you know, handing our votes in early or anything. So we're just giving you exactly like this point in time, like what our teams are, which I think is pretty authentic. And I think, I think right Rightly so, because the main part of the college basketball season is March. And if you're not going to include like conference tournaments in the first couple of rounds in March in your awards, I think that's kind of silly and doing a disservice to like what people pay the most attention to during your season. So uh, it's I just think it's a, a unique opportunity for Mike and I to go ahead and give you this during this period of time. I think we kind of nailed it as far as we're you know, timeline as far as we're trying to give you our All-American teams. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start my first team, All-American. I'm going to go with who you think we're going to go with right away. Of course, we're going to put Frank Mason the third from Kansas on your first team, All-American team. What else do you want? He just might be the player of the year. And think about this, guys. Here's here's maybe the most unique thing about Frank Mason III. If you think about that Kansas recruiting class that he came in with, that class included Wiggins, it included Embiid, it included Wayne Selden, it included Connor Frankamp, who we love here at Screen the Screener, and it included Frank Mason. He's the only one that's still at Kansas right now, and he's the only one who's going to win National Player of the Year. All of the players that we just mentioned were ranked higher than him coming in to their freshman season at Kansas as far as like the high school rankings go. Kudos to Frank Mason III for improving his game year by year, season by season. Kudos to the Kansas coaching staff for helping that improvement happen over and over again in repetitive fashion, season after season. It is so rewarding. It is so nice. It is so genuine and authentic when you get to see a player improve in the gains and the bounds that Frank Mason did every single season at Kansas. Bill Self was doing a great job. I know that all Kansas fans are going to say we lost in the Elite Eight again, but just look at Frank Mason That's your thumbnail sketch of why your program is so incredible. This guy came in as kind of like an unheralded part of that recruiting class with Wiggins and Bede and Selden. 
And then he he's the one that ends up being the national player of the year. That's really cool. Next player on the first team All-American, of course, we called it preseason. We said that this guy was going to, you know, challenge for the lead in the NCA in the nation in uh, uh, rebounding numbers. Biggie Swanigan from Purdue. What else do you want from him too? 18.5 points per game, 12 and a half boards, three plus dimes, unreal percentages from the field. He's just a true 6'9 power forward who's really skilled and very similar to Frank Mason has put in a ton of work for this improvement to happen. The work was on his end. The work was on Purdue's coaching staff end. So even though Biggie's only a sophomore, uh, and like uh, I think we mentioned that he's going to declare for the NBA draft and not hire an agent. Um, he has that option to come back if he doesn't get the you know information that he's looking for. Both of these players that are on my first team, All-American, made huge improvements. And you love when you see college athletes, student athletes, go ahead and put the hard work in. And that hard work is rewarded big time with a reward like first team All-American. My third first-team All-American is Josh Hart from Villanova. The dude was a stud all year for one of the best teams in the nation all year. Hart is an automatic selection as far as I'm concerned with his numbers and his grit. He's almost got 19 points per game, six-plus boards. Again, great percentages across the board for him as well. Plus, you know what? There's something about a senior getting better every season. Just like Mason did, Hart did the exact same thing. And that's one of the beauties of the NCAA tournament, the NCAA season, and the NCAA in, in general, is that there's an opportunity for student athletes to have this like ladder climb to improve year after year and improve, not improve their stock, but just improve their, their play, improve their team's chances for success, and improve as a person. And when you listen to Josh Hart talk, you can hear that improvement. Next player on my first team All-American has to be Sandarius Thornwell from South Carolina. When you go off and you're the player of the year in the conference, in the conference that has Monk and Fox, and you're the defensive player of the year in that same conference, and you put up over 100 points while leading your team to its first Final Four ever, you're first team All-American. That's what you are. There's no other definition for what you are except that. The dude averaged 21-plus points per game with seven boards. He did that at a snail's pace play. South Carolina plays at an unbelievably slow slow pace by design. And even at that slow pace, he put up numbers comparable with anybody in the country. He shot at uh, 45% from the field, uh, 83 from the line, and 39 from three, throwing two-plus steals plus a block and almost three helpers. He is a no-brainer first-teamer as far as I'm concerned. People that left him off voted too early or just made a mistake. And my final member of my first-team All-American is Nigel Williams-Goss from Gonzaga. He's the best player in one of the best teams this season. He's a great leader. He's super smart. He's selfless. He's humble. And I feel like he's very Russell Wilson-ish, but just maybe even a little bit sharper than Russell with his words. Totally rooting for him this weekend in the one-on-one matchup against Sendarius. That's all my own personal uh, bias. But that's my first team All-American. I got Frank Mason the third. I got Biggie. I got Josh Hart. I got the stud from South Carolina, Sendarius Thornwell. And I got Nigel Williams-Goss from Gonzaga.
Yeah, I, I, I don't see the Thornall one, I got to tell you. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and if you include the tournament, I, I think it's a no-brainer. It's just, I don't know anybody who's talking about Thornwell when they lose to at Ole Miss in Alabama to end the year. I, you know, like, I, 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 here's the thing. I would lean towards having Thornwell over Fultz, and we'll get into what they did what they did in a minute, because to me, I, you're not putting someone on the All-American team that's 2-16. and 16. So if you want to put Thornwell on there because he's uh, SEC Player of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year, no problem with that. I think that's great. I just think it's tough, because I, I think the only reason you put him on there, and listen, you said you're looking at it for the tournament. Look at the through tournament's totally fair. But I, I can't put them on any of mine because, I, I, like I said, I, I, I try to follow what they were doing, and they just do it for the regular season. But, I mean, there's no doubt that Thornwell's a stud, and quite frankly, he could end up being the player of the tournament. I mean, it, it is not out of the realm of possibility that South Carolina could beat Gonzaga, and at that point, all bets are off. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you on all the other ones, and, and, and I especially like the fact that you didn't put Lonzo Ball on there. Yeah, I unfortunately could not avoid doing that. I did put Lonzo Ball in there. I think he was the storyline. Alford took the whole article out in the paper, the advertisement, apologizing to UCLA, the most storied college basketball franchise, the whole thing. So Lonzo Ball did bring them to a new level. Listen, I think they make the tournament whether he's there or not, but certainly I think they were much better with him. He was a distributor to a high-octane offense, maybe the best offense in the entire country. So I did end up putting Lonzo Ball reluctantly onto the First team All American group. Uh, next up, I put Josh Hart. Josh Hart was dominant all year long. Villanova was the best team one or two all year long. Josh Hart was great. They won the Big East Championship. They won the Big East Tournament Championship. I think Hart's a no brainer. I also put Nigel Williams Goss. I don't know how you have a first team All American without Nigel Williams Goss on there. He was the best player on a Gonzaga team that was the storyline all year long with their no losses until the very last one. He's 16 points per game, almost 17, six rebounds, four and a half assists, almost two steals a game. A dominant player for the number one team that, that didn't have a loss to almost the entire entire season. I don't know how, how Nigel williams Goss is not on the All-American team, the AP All-American team, first team. Uh, next, Caleb Swanigan, of course, Big E's the runner-up to player of the year in my mind. Just a great athlete, really worked himself back into shape. 44% from three-point range this year, pretty much 80% from the foul line, bringing up 10%. He ended up going a double-double the entire season, played oh, like 32 minutes, got in better shape, moves, three-point ability, just so versatile, going to be a great pro, a 10-year pro wherever he goes, Caleb Swanigan, and now he didn't even hire an agent, so he may come back. And then, of course, number one is Frank Mason. He's the AP Player of the Year. He was outstanding, just led his Kansas team from start to finish, just an incredible player, 50% from three-point range, almost 20 points per game, hit his free throws, leader, big shot after big shot for Bill Self in Kansas. Frank Mason is a tremendous uh, All-American Player of the Year, AP Player of the Year for for Kansas. So now that we got these down, Gus, we got our first teams in, second and third teams. I think it's time now. Let's take a look at the real AP team. How about I read these to you now and let's see your reaction. Sound good? Oh, great. I love uh, this. Uh, can we just, uh, just five seconds on this? Sure. By the way, you called Frank Mason III to be first team All-American back in October when it seemed like it was like a foreign language. So I hope that at some point that we can go back and revisit that tape and then we can celebrate you calling this because you called for this all the way back in, in October. And I'm going to tell you what, I looked at you like with like, you know, one eye open, like, you know, one eyebrow like furrowed. I was like, really? Is that is that where you're going with this? And then look what happened. Mike Randall, guru, as always. Hashtag blind squirrel. 
No, I appreciate it. Listen, I liked Mason the whole year long. I thought he was going to be a first-team All-American. He just had everything. He was coming back. He, I think he was so underappreciated. But listen, we get some right, we get some wrong. That was one of the ones we got right. I do appreciate it. But let's get into these All-American teams now. So this is the AP All-American team, the actual team that has been announced. We'll start with the first team and work our way down to third because I think we're going to have more issues and comments on third team. First team, Gus, we had Frank Mason of Kansas, Josh Hart, Villanova, Caleb Swanigan, Purdue, Lonzo Bull, UCLA, and Justin Jackson of North Carolina. Any issues with that first team? No, not really, because you know if you're going to talk, if you're going to squabble over the top ten players in the country, like go ahead and squabble away. Like it's almost like we should have like six players on each team just to make sure there's no, less squabbling. Um, am I in love with uh, Ball being there? No. Am I, do I like Jackson being there? Absolutely. Yeah, Jackson's a great player. I think I have no problem with him being first team All American, and I think those first three for everybody are automatic those are like blanket first three uh first team all americans no doubt you're nicer than i am my friend i don't see how nigel williams goss is not on the first team i don't get it justin jackson lonzo bull you can flip a coin either one of them can get bumped down gonzaga is the storyline look at this i'm defending gonzaga the podcast is flipped on its head I, I, Gonzaga is the storyline this entire season. You got to put their kid, their best player, on first team. Justin Jackson, they had a seven lost UNC team. Lonzo Ball, I'm with you. I can put him back down as well. They were loaded. I wasn't, you can't say that he was necessarily that much better than other players. TJ Leaf had a great year, things like that. So I got to put Goss on first team. Uh, and second team, you can put Ball or Jackson there, but it's fine. The rest of the second team, Nigel Williams-Goss, Luke Kennard, Malik Monk, Dylan Brooks, and Jonathan Motley. I think my only – the only thing that seems a little bit off to me, of course I'd like to have uh, Nigel on first team. That's just my own personal bias. I think Brooks missed out. I think you could put him. I think you could argue that you could put Brooks on first, second, or third team. So having him on second seems just right. I, I think I'm okay with everything else on this team. I don't have a big a big beef with it. Look, I didn't put Monk on any of my teams. I chose to put Fox on third and leave Monk off just because of his inconsistencies. But he was a transcendent player, and he was a little bit comet like himself. Like we mentioned, like UCLA being a comet this year. Like you have to watch them if you can see them. Um, Monk was just that way too. Like he was a mu- like he was appointment TV. If if Kentucky was playing, like you kind of wanted yeah. to see what that guy was doing. That's so the way I, I say. No, yeah. I have no problem with Monk being on any of the teams. I just chose not to put him on my team. Yeah, the funny thing is, I I do like Fox better. I think beginning of the season, I said I I think Fox is going to be a better pro than Monk, and I also put him higher on my All American team. I don't know if I put Monk there at all, but I did put Fox. The thing is, the injuries threw me off the scent. So he got injured there. And again, when I did it, I, I didn't include the postseason. So to me, I don't think Fox can make it there. And I, I put Monk in. And you know what? He was more consistent than you realize. I thought he was inconsistent too. But gosh, even his like bad games were high teens. So he was pretty, pretty good throughout the year, pretty consistent. He was a story in the first half of the year. This is a solid team here. Uh, Kennard just keeps getting better and better as the year goes on. Motley, Dylan Brooks, Kennard. Monk. I mean, no arguments here, but let's roll up the sleeves, my friend. Let's get after it here. We're going to go to third team. I'm ready to go. I'll let you go first, and you can, then uh, then I'll comment. So third team, All-American, Josh Jackson, Markel Fultz, Bonzi Colson, Ethan Happ, and Lowry Marketin. Okay, look. We we championed Wisconsin pretty much the whole year. We, we, we love Nigel Hayes. We love, we love Bronson. Um, we, we talked about how we love how Coach Carr allows his players to be uh, – have their personality and be outspoken. 
Ethan Happ is good. He's not that good. He's not third team All American good. You can't be third team All American good if you're only going to average 25 minutes a game. Can I get an amen from the congregation? Look, Ethan Happ's unbelievably skilled. He's a really unique player. He's one of those guys that like was a, a guard in high school and then had his growth spurt. So he has like these like you know guard skills and the big body. But, we like, did not plan this. I'm gonna tell you right now. I had no idea who was gonna say this. Go ahead. But but he's not a third team All American by no means. No, uh, I would like Markin in there ahead of him. So I've I, not and, and and you know and the listeners know how much we support Wisconsin and their players. He's not a third team All American. Moving moving on. <laughs> Markin was just like off of, on my like also ran list, so I have no problem with him being on the third team here. Uh, I'm totally okay with that. Uh, I think if anything, I, I, I don't know why, and I know like Fox's calling card is going to be this game in the tournament. I think you have to carve out a spot for him somewhere on this team, somewhere on the second team, somewhere on the third team. I think if you're leaving him off your All-American team status, I, I, I think you're making a mistake. So I think that's the one mistake. Anything else I'm missing here? No, I'm, uh, you're good. I, and the marketing thing, I could take it or leave it. I have no problem with that. Um, yeah, I, I think he's a very hinge type player. Yeah. Like if you have on, look, I agree. He's incredible. Uh, he has an unbelievably unique skill set. He's obviously worked very hard in the program, so you're not going to short him at any point. But if you leave him off, I'm also not going to have a beef with it. Yeah, Josh Jackson, fine. Bonzi Colson, fine. Here we go, Gus. Yeah. Mar- Markel Fultz is a joke. Okay, the team went nine and twenty-two and two and sixteen. Gus, if they went zero and eighteen, are we giving him thirteen All American? Really? Okay, big scorers that don't win to me are honorable mention players. That's what honorable mention is for. You didn't win anything. This is America. We're about winning. You have to win something. You can't put Markel Fultz on there because he had 23 points getting his fanny kicked every game in the Pac-12. I'm sorry. He can't take a spot from one of these guys. And here's my last one. Ethan Happ is on this team, Gus, because of three games. He ended the season, first of all, as like the second or third scorer, depending on where the numbers fall out, on a Wisconsin team that massively underachieved. Here we go. They made a run in the tournament. But for the majority of the team, at the end of the season, when they gagged a 10-1 and record in the Big Ten, no one's talking about Wisconsin having a great season. Three games, Gus. 24 points, 13 rebounds, home game against Syracuse in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. 28 points, 12 rebounds at Minnesota in an OT win. 32 points at home against Rutgers. By the way, they needed overtime in that game. That's it. There's no other games. Take a look. Is it the 8.14 rebound game at Nebraska that they won in overtime by one? Or maybe, guess it's the 9.7 rebound game loss at Northwestern the very next game. Or maybe it was the four points at Ohio State. Or maybe it was the eight points in a big loss to Michigan State at the end of the year where he couldn't handle Nick Ward. Wisconsin's a team that lost five of their six games, Gus, down the stretch. They underachieved. Then all of a sudden, Bronson Caden turns into Dale Ellis. Tweet the podcast if you know who Dale Ellis is, by the way. And then they woke up and they made a sweet 16. How on earth are you putting Ethan Happ over Monte Morris? The Big 12 tournament champions who wanted Fog Allen, 5-1 to one assist to turnover ratio? Come on, man. Totally with you on this. <laughs> I don't know where. How are you leaving Monte Morris off of oh. the All-American team? What are we doing here, people? Uh, what are we doing? And I was not a Monte Morris guy. You were. I came on late. But Monte Morris, come on, man. So <laughs> here's my two cents on Markel Fultz. Like, Markel Fultz is awesome. He's great. He's super talented. He may go first. May go with the first pick in the NBA draft overall. 
Guess what? He didn't make his team any better. Exactly. Exactly. He didn't do anything to help that team win any games at any point during the season. In fact, when he was injured, he sat out a few games at the end of the year just because he didn't want to hurt his draft status or put a red herring out there. Exactly. So guess what? As far as I'm concerned, being a former student athlete at the Division I level, like there is no way if I was even 50% that I was sitting out any competition. If I was ready to roll, I was out there throwing everything out there to compete against whoever I was going to compete against during that particular competition. There is no way I was going to go to my coach and say, Coach, listen, I'm really worried about blank. I need to sit this one out. That's not what college athletics is about. That's not what competition is about. And if you're going to sit out a potential opportunity to compete against others, what is that telling? What is that saying about you as an as an as a as an athlete, as a perf, you know potential professional athlete? What is that telling everybody? You don't care. That's what it's saying. It's saying you don't care. You don't care about the outcome. You don't care about helping your program win. You don't care about your teammates that are out there doing the exact same thing that you should be doing. I have a big problem with this. You can hear it in my voice. I have a giant problem with this. The dude is super talented. There's no denying that. What I am questioning is, is his heart and his dedication to what he wants to do for a living, which is play professional basketball. That's my problem. And listen, listen. if you want to say, oh, so you're saying a guy can't get in last place team? No, call it the Steve Carlton effect. You're going to say, what's Steve Carlton? Steve Carlton won the Cy Young on a Philadelphia Phillies team that won 54 or 58 games that year. You know why? Are we aware how many games he won? That's the point. Like, if you're on a last place team, you have a burden of having to do that much more in order to impress. Could you go 500 in the Pac-12, Washington? Could you go 500? Because then I have no problem putting him on. Steve Carlton, I think, we'll look at it. It was like 27 wins or something, Gus. 25 wins out of the 59 they had. He had almost half their wins. Right, and that's why you get the Cy Young. So, Markel, I love the 23 points per game. He actually was 49% of the field, which is great. I'm just telling you, I'm not putting you on, on a team ahead of, ahead of a guy, a winner like Monte Mars. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Totally with you. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Gus, right. I, I, yeah, I think it's time. I think it's time. You ready to give him the Final Four? Yeah, let's let's hit the final four. What do you say? Uh, what do you think? You, you go first or second? Your call. Good question. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll go first. You just want to like hit each game, and then uh, I'll give my opinion. You give your opinion. No, do I say doing both? Doing both in a row. Okay, very good. So what we're going to do this is, we got some mood music here. The mood music is going to put us in here. We got Gus. He's going to sit back and relax. I'm going to play the music for you, and Gus will give you his rundown of both games. He'll give you the first game and the second game. We will hold off on the championship game because we'll come back and give you a little preview on that before before Monday night. But here we go. Gus Kearns, Screen the Screener Podcast, your final four selections. Hit the music! Okay, people, we need to go ahead and start with the Gonzaga-South Carolina game. Let's just go Vegas first. Let's go line. I like Gonzaga and the points. I like them to cover. I like them not to cover comfortably, but I like them to cover. I think South Carolina is going to play hard. They're going to man up. 
there's no chance they're going to get shortchanged on effort. The complete polar opposite of the previous conversation we just had about Markel Fultz. They will do what everybody hopes Markel Fultz did this season. They will play hard, their effort will be undenied, and they will totally bring it and leave everything out on the floor, and Frank Martin will coach his socks off in this game. It's not going to be enough. Here's why it's not going to be enough. They do not have enough down low to deal with the amount of bigs that Gonzaga has. As much as uh, Kosar has been playing great, Silva has been uh, you know, manning up, those two guys are going to get into foul trouble immediately. That's going to force Coach Martin to make decisions. Is he going to leave his uh, under uh, underskilled, foul trouble-prone bigs in to play against unbelievably skilled bigs against Gonzaga? Or is he going to go to his bench and ask some people to do things that he's not asked them to do at any time during this season, in the biggest game of the season, in the Final Four? I think that's going to be the crux of the problem for South Carolina against Gonzaga. I think on the perimeter, I think it's going to be a wash. You know, we talked about our All-American teams, and we both had uh, Sandarius Thornwell, uh, at least I did, and we we both had Nigel Williams-Goss on our first team. So I think the talent at the perimeter is going to be pretty even. You can see Perk match up with Dozier. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. Here's the one thing to keep an eye on. I am not sure what they're going to decide to do, they being Gonzaga. I don't know what they're going to decide to do with Cinderius Thornwell. Here's an option. I don't know if they're going to do this, but I think it's intriguing. What if they go ahead and put Jonathan Williams on him? Jonathan Williams has more length. He can laterally cover the ground that Cinderius is going to cover. He can battle Sundarius. Sundarius Thornwell is unbelievable on the offensive boards. Jonathan Williams can go ahead and battle him down there. What if they go ahead and pull that move and negate the one advantage that South Carolina has over Gonzaga at that position and goes ahead and sacrifices a couple things in other places? I think that might be the move. And that might be the decision-making, that might be the, like, the difference-making move in this particular game if Jonathan Williams can negate Sundarius Thornwell. And maybe Thornwell goes for his usual 20 points that he's been getting, but maybe it's an inefficient 20 points. And it's like, uh, how about a 2 for, uh, how about a 7 for 23 type performance from the field where he's not as efficient as he has been the whole entire tournament. So how about that? as a matchup that Gonzaga can go to that maybe nobody's thinking about. So I'd say pay attention to that. Again, I like Gonzaga to win the game. I like Gonzaga to cover. I think this might be the game where we see Karnowski kind of have his way inside. I'm sure they're going to double on the post. I'm sure he's going to take his time. If he can take his time, he's going to put those guys in foul trouble. He's going to pass well out of the post. He's going to, again, their big-to-big passing is really out of control. I think that's also going to be a factor here as well. So give me Gonzaga through to the championship game. Let's flip over to the other side of the bracket and look at this unbelievable matchup of Oregon and UNC. Unfortunately, we have to talk about injuries at this point in the season for UNC. We talked about how Joel Berry II is the engine that makes UNC go. There is no question that he is the man that is going to determine this game. This game is 100% Joel Berry II dependent. 
if he plays at the caliber and the level that he's been playing at the entire season, UNC is going to win this game. Is If he is compromised, if he is less than 100%, if he is 75%, give me Oregon. I know that you think I'm like kind of playing both sides of the fence here. So for me to pick here, I'm going to say give me Oregon. Give me Oregon to move on to the final game and defeat UNC because Joel Berry will be compromised a bit health-wise. I think they match up unbelievably well on the perimeter, and I'm going to call for Jordan Bell holding his own, staying out of foul trouble, and battling all three of those bigs down low. I think they do have somebody to match up with Luke May. I do think that that will not be a factor, even though he's been going off in this particular tournament. Give me Oregon moving on to play Gonzaga. Hashtag West Coast Club. Wow, those were incredible picks. That's a tough act to follow. Folks, you heard Gus there. He's got Gonzaga giving the points. He's got Oregon taking the points. Wow. All right. Final four. Here we go. Mike Randall, let's do this. I want to hear what you got to say. absolute biggest weekend of the season for the Screen the Screener podcast, and it all comes down to this, the Final Four in Phoenix. We've gotten a lot right this year, we've gotten some wrong, but none have been more important than this. Game 1, Gonzaga favored by 6.5 over South Carolina. The Bulldogs have been a top team in the tournament for years, and they finally reached their long-deserved Final Four. They had a phenomenal run, 36-1 this year, and they're now they're favored in the Final Four by 6.5 points. Now, it hasn't been the cleanest run for the Zags. They pulled away late against number 16 seed South Dakota State in round one, then led by 18 at the half, 38-20, before almost blowing the huge lead in Northwestern. Then they barely escaped versus West Virginia as Jonathan Williams three on the break when West Virginia was up 58-57, pretty much allowed them to survive. If he doesn't make that shot, I don't think they're here. And then they beat an undermanned and overachieving number 11 seed Xavier, 83-59. They got another mediocre opponent in number seven South Carolina, which means no Arizona, no Baylor, no Duke, no Villanova on this road. Good old number seven, South Carolina. Now the Gamecocks had a much more difficult trip. They had a comeback against Marquette. Then they steamrolled Duke after being down 30-23 at the half. Then they blitzed a tough Baylor team 70-50 and then Florida 77-70. That's as tough a road as you can have, but they navigated it. Tough, hard-nosed defensive team. We know how great Sindarius Thornwell's been. He's been the best player in the tournament, averaging almost 26 points per game. But even players like senior guard Dwayne Notice, who put up zero against Alabama in the SEC tournament, is averaging 11 points per game in the NCAA tournament as well. I got four points for you to consider. Number one, this will undoubtedly be a low-scoring game. Defense is going to be at a premium. They're playing in the University of Phoenix Stadium, which means it's going to be difficult to make long-range jump shots. Ask Buddy Heald and Isaiah Cousins of Oklahoma why they shot 3 of 16 from three-point range in the Final Four last year. Number two, Gonzaga does not respond well to physicality. West Virginia was in their grill with a putrid offense, and they had the game won. Now, Gonzaga plays great defense, fine, 
But West Virginia did not have a great offense. Look at their end-of-game sequence. That's not defense. It's just chaotic offense. Three, the best player on the floor is Sindarius Thornwell. Gonzaga will have to find a way to stop him. People tell you about this incredible depth Gonzaga has. I don't buy it. Killian Tilly is averaging 2.7 points per game in the four games in this tournament and has a grand total of one block. Silas Melson, 3.7 points per game in the tournament. He's 6 of 18 from the field. I'll tell you this. Killian Tilly and Silas Melson, if they're playing big minutes in this game, Gonzaga is going home, folks. This game will be won or lost by the starters, so I don't want to hear about the incredible Gonzaga bench because it's not going to come into play in this game. Last thing, number four, I'll give you one stat. Since 1985, seven teams have entered the Final Four with one loss or less. Seven of them. How many of them won the title? Zippo. Zip and Pip and Pip left town. I'll go even further. Number of teams, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There's been 12 teams that started the tournament, the NCAA tournament since 1985, with zero or one loss. How many of them won the title? Zero. For all of those reasons, I am taking South Carolina plus six and a half. These predictions are like poker, right? We don't know what's going to happen. If Gus and I knew what was going to happen, we wouldn't be here. We'd be in Vegas right now making millions. We'd be like Biff in the Back to the Future 3 movie winning sports bets for a living. So we need to consider the likely range of outcomes in this game. I could see a close Gonzaga win. I could see a close South Carolina win. I can't see a South Carolina blowout, and I can't see a Gonzaga blowout. For those reasons, I think six and a half is way too much. Give me the Gamecocks, plus six and a half in the first final four game. Game two, North Carolina favored by four and a half over Oregon. This one was a toughie. North Carolina is the best team left in the tournament. They have great players. Justin Jackson was a first-team All-American, a great coach, and old Roy. Big guys. Kennedy Meeks had 612 rebounds in that lead eight game. Newest rock star Luke May gives them depth off the bench. They have experience from last year. How do you not make them the favorite to win the title? They have to be. Gonzaga is. I don't get that. North Carolina has everything. They have the best team from top to bottom. Sure, they have to play a tough team in Oregon, but how are they not favored to win the title? On the other side, though, we have a similar schematic. Great players. Dylan Brooks was second-team All-American. Great coach Dana Altman in his first Final Four. He has big guys. Jordan Bell was the Midwest Regional MVP. But not as much depth and not as much experience. But look at this Look at this objectively. Oregon has been much more impressive getting here than UNC. Look at North Carolina's trip. They beat Texas Southern. Ho-hum. They were in a world of hurt against an Arkansas team that plays the exact same style they do. They need to shut them out over the last three minutes just to win. They beat, in my mind, an overrated Butler team that was very up and down this year. And they held on 75-73 to beat a Kentucky team that played 22 minutes without Fox or Monk because of foul trouble. But look at Oregon, on the other hand. They beat an Iona team that likes to run and has tournament experience, so they beat the team with a similar style handily. North Carolina struggled with Arkansas. They beat a Rhode Island and a Michigan team that both won their conference tournaments and were as hot as anyone in the entire NCAA tournament. Then they pounded Kansas, maybe the best team in the tournament, in Kansas City. Remember, keep hearing that? In Kansas City. They did it. The magic number here for me is 15. What's 15, you ask? It's the number of points Joel Berry has, plus the number of fouls that Jordan Bell gets. If that combined answer is greater than 15, UNC is going to win going away. If the number is less than 15, I think Oregon's definitely going to cover and probably win. So if Joe Barry gives you 17 points, Jordan Bell has three fouls, UNC's going to win. If Joe Barry gives you 12 points and Jordan Bell has like one foul, then I think Oregon's going to win. Those are the key numbers. Bell played a tremendous game against Kansas. 11 points, 13 rebounds, 8 blocks, just one foul. Joe Barry has not been himself this entire tournament and not only twisted an ankle in practice last week, but he twisted another ankle in the win against Kentucky. 
If he's not close to 100%, UNC's in a ton of trouble here. At full strength, I think UNC rolls. But they aren't at full strength, and Oregon is scalding hot. That's what makes this tough. I think Dorsey can take Jackson or Pinson off the dribble. I think Brooks is due for an explosive game, but it all comes back to Joel Berry. He has to play both ends of the floor. They'll probably hide him on Pritchard, who, by the way, has an act for hitting big shots, which could happen. But if I had to guess, I think Joel Berry is pretty good. Andrew Carter, the Charlotte Observer reporter on Twitter today, that old Roy says Joel Berry was mad. He wasn't allowed to do full court work in practice today. Roy called him testy. Testiness equals positive in my book. I think the scalding hot three-point shooting of Oregon is going to cool down in the big stadium, which means the inside game in North Carolina wears the Ducks down. Big B. Williams is going to have to give him big minutes, but I don't think he's going to match up to Meeks, Hicks, or Bradley. And then, of course, there's Luke May. I am going with UNC minus four and a half. I want to pick Oregon. I want Oregon to win, but I can't see a team that lost on that type of shot last year that is by far the best team remaining talent-wise in the tournament losing this game. I'm not going to predict a UNC two-point win and say Oregon's going to cover. That's garbage. I'll just give the points. Give me UNC in the finals on Monday night with their shot at redemption. Well, you were asking if you could top those picks. I think you just did. Look, if you're not going to pay attention to that Joel Berry combined with Jordan Bell stat, that is an unbelievable number that you threw out there for people to pay attention to. I hope that we can, like, you know, I'm going to be tracking that all game. 15. I, I, can't wait to, I can't wait to follow it. 15. 15, that's the number, Gus. Because here's the thing. Joel Berry had 11 against Kentucky. They almost lost. Jordan Bell only had one foul play spectacular. And that's the thing. If you tell me Joe Berry's going to have 17 points, I think UNC's winning this game. If you tell me Jordan Bell gets two fouls right away, has to sit down, I think UNC's winning this game. But that's the key. If Joel Berry is compromised in any way, they're going to have the big guys inside UNC, Meeks and Hicks and Bradley, but I don't think they can carry them by themselves. I think they are ancillary players. They're going to need a big game from Jackson. They're going to be need a big game from Berry. If Jordan Bell is compromised and he's in foul trouble sitting down or Joe Berry goes off, I think Oregon's in a world of trouble. A lot of trouble. I, I agree. I think I, as much as UNC is Joel Berry dependent, I feel like Oregon is very Jordan Bell dependent. Uh, and his dependency is foul trouble, whereas uh, uh, Joel Berry second is health. So I think both of those factors are unbelievable. Those are the two factors you need to pay attention to in this game without question. There we go, Gus. There's our final four picks. We got to give a couple thank yous here. A little thanks to Vince DeCola for that incredible war theme from the Rocky soundtrack for me. Oh, I, uh, can we give a thanks to the record company? Yes, excellent. Uh, I, the backstory on the record company is uh, I have a friend that lives over in Europe. Uh, I, I got to you know be in person with him this past summer, and we were you know talking about like you know hey what have you been up to so on and so on. He goes hey I saw this I saw this band from America. They came over and played in Europe. Uh, the record company it played like they were ha- their hair was on fire and like their life depended on it and then you know a year later they're g- nominated for a grammy so record company awesome uh if you haven't tuned into them they're they're fantastic and folks we'll come back on sunday night give you our national championship game picks we'll recap the final four gus i want to say thank you for taking this ride we're here we're going to the national championship it's been a pleasure to sit here and talk ncaa hoops with you this entire season on this momentous occasion gus no less do you know that 30 years ago today the first one shining moment was played after syracuse beat indiana gus do you know where you were when keith smart hit that runner to beat syracuse 
No, I don't remember where I was. Do you? Where were you? Yes, because I'm an only child and I had no friends. I was in my living room on two full-court Nerf hoops recreating the game, and I pulled them off the wall and slammed them down because I wanted Syracuse to win so badly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Coleman yeah, missed that right. free throw. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Oh, he, my. he came up a little bit short on the front end, right? Yeah, they just lost track of Smart in the zone, the short corner, floater. He nailed it. Good job. Good job by them and Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight said in that Final Four, he said to his team, you get me to the Final Four, I'll win you the title. He did say that. And lo and behold, look what happened. All right, Mike, thank you so much for sharing uh, space with me on this podcast. And listeners, thank you so much for sharing your space with us this entire season. Uh, this isn't a goodbye. We're just simply saying thank you for giving us uh, you know, part of your week every week and letting us inform you on the college basketball that we're seeing. And then we hope that we helped your enjoyment of it and informed you and, and, and hopefully helped you win a, a bracket challenge or, or, or win a bet or you know at least have some good conversation with some of your guys or some of your girls along the way. So thank you listeners so much out there uh, for tuning us in all season. We're, we're, we're humbled and, and uh, very thankful for, for sure. Here it is, folks. Here it comes in. David Barrett, the producer of One Shining Moment, and he just liked us on Twitter. Things are rolling, Gus. Here it is. One Shining Moment. We'll see you. Championship Monday, right around the corner. Oh, you.